Well, it's encouraging to see a few people came back and uh, hope you enjoyed your coffee and whatever else was out there. I hope you still have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 6. We are now at the house and we've opened the door. What we're going to do in our next five sessions is visit five rooms on 6 Hebrews Lane. Now, the first room, we've opened the door, and we're shocked to see, as we go into the hall, that the first room is cordoned off with yellow police tape. And, and in a sense, what we have to be this morning is with the CSI, the Crime Scene Investigating Unit. And you might think that's rather strange to be saying that about a passage of the Bible, but the difficulty is that a a lot of blood has been spilled over this passage. Uh, A lot of good, sound, born-again Christians have even violently disagreed on this passage, what it means, what it doesn't mean. And a lot of, of course, ink has been spilled. That is before uh, internet and all the things we do now. Now, what, what has happened is, and it's very, very important, <clears throat> what you're going to hear in this lesson initially may a little bit surprise you, but bear with me and uh, hear me through. What has happened when we come to chapter 6 is we start asking the passage wrong questions. And the difficulty is that we ask questions that we already know the answers to. Our presuppositions, if we're an Arminian, we come with a certain perspective. If we're a Calvinist, we come with a certain perspective. And the difficulty is if we ask the wrong questions to this passage, we will get the wrong answers. In the 16th century, Martin Luther became convinced that the church needed to reform its soteriology, that that is, its understanding of how to be saved. And he came especially from the book of Romans, to see that the book of Romans tells you how to be saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And the only thing that tells you how to be saved is the Bible alone. Well, the church had a tremendous opportunity because he did not plan to blow up the church. The church had a real opportunity to revisit this and, in a sense, get the tires aligned again and get in the right direction. But the Roman Catholic Church didn't do that. It convened its own kind of counter-reformation. And it went to the book of James. And it asked the book of James, how do you get saved? And the way you get saved in the book of James is faith plus works. That's what they came up with. Amazingly, that's what they believed in the first place. 
So, surprise, surprise. But the problem is that the book of James isn't dealing with how you get saved. The book of Romans deals with that. The book of James is, the book of Romans says you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. The book of James answers the question, what kind of faith is saving faith? And it is a faith that works. And amazingly, Paul and James take the same passages from Genesis, for example, Abraham believed God and it was accounted him to righteousness. And the Roman Catholic Church came to very different conclusions because they asked the wrong question. Now, the problem when we come to Romans 6 is I believe in all humility that we ask the wrong questions. We ask the questions, who is the preacher talking about? And with that, is the preacher saying that people can lose their salvation? And most of us approach the passage that way, and the problem is my theology has already answered the question before I asked it. Don't you think I've got great blue eyes. Well, what else can you say? Um, I don't think that's what the passage is talking about. I think the wrong question is being asked. And and for a number of reasons. First of all, good Bible-believing believers come up with different answers. For example, John Wesley. I can mention that name here, can I? John Wesley, he believes that this passage teaches a true believer can lose his or her salvation. Do you see reasons why he might? Sure. If he's asking that question, can a believer lose their salvation? Um, Charles Stanley. Uh, He believes in eternal security. So when he comes to this passage, he believes that... uh, a Christian can lose their rewards. John MacArthur, he comes to this passage and he says, this is a passage of testing for evidences of what are the marks of a true believer or not a true believer. Charles Spurgeon comes to this passage and he says, it's hypothetical. If you keep driving like an idiot when you're drunk, you're going to wrap yourself around a tree. And he's talking to a Mennonite who doesn't drink, and they have a buggy. That last part's me, not Spurgeon. Okay. Now, you see, the problem is that if we're asking this question, who is this passage talking about, you can see why good people are going to come to differing conclusions, and I'd like to suggest they're going to come to the wrong conclusion no matter what their position is. For example, you know, they'll say um, in verse 5, and one who has been enlightened, verse 4, and has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And they'll say, well, notice that word, tasted. 
Um, have you ever been to one of those stores where you give you little samples and you get a little taste of... But the problem is, the very same word is used in chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus tasted death. Now, did he just kind of go like that? And No. No. He ingested death. He, he took it to the full. The problem is that that isn't the question of the passage any more than does James teach you how to get saved. Well, smart guy, what is the question you should be asking? And the question we should be asking is this. What is the relationship, what is the nature, what is the place and the purpose of the warnings of God in relationship to the promises of God. You see, the problem is, even if you've kind of solved chapter 6, this is the third of five warning passages. And the question isn't who is the preacher talking about. The question is, who is the preacher talking to? And he's talking to Christians. Notice chapter 2. That's the first warning passage. Chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you must pay closer attention. No. Therefore, we must pay closer attention. Who's the we? Well, starting with the preacher, and he goes on, why should we pay, pay closer attention to what we have heard? Well, we don't want to drift away. We don't want to drift away. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? Now, do you see what I'm saying? That's the first warning passage, and the warning passage is directed to the preacher and the congregation. So when we come to chapter 6, which is the third warning passage, we have to assume he is speaking to true believers. Believers who are pro pro professing to be truly saved. And our difficulty is we go through and we analyze, the, well, they tasted of the heavenly gift, the this, that, the other thing. But it wasn't, you know, they didn't devour it. They didn't. And that isn't what he's doing. What the book of Romans is dealing with, you see, the problem is if I come to this passage and say, who's he talking to or talking about, I will trumpet with my, no pun intended, trumpet with my presupposed theology and I will diffuse the passage of its power because <clears throat> if he is saying that true believers cannot lose their salvation I think I'm a true believer so well that's kind of interesting and I'll move on and let's get going but that isn't why the preacher gave that he gave that for me 
Don Theobald. Now, let me explain. <clears throat> the Bible is the only thing that produces faith. Obviously, the Holy Spirit. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, when we come to the Bible and we hear a verse like that, we think what produces faith is the promises of God. But that isn't what the text says. It says the word of God. So that means the Psalms are intended to produce faith. The Proverbs are intended to produce faith. The historical narrative of both the Old and the New Testament is intended to produce faith. The problem we get is that the Bible has many, many promises and many, many warnings. And if we're thinking in a certain category, what we will be doing is always believing the promises and depending where we're at spiritually, basically ignoring the warnings. Is that clear? Now, the promises of God declare his goal or his end or his purpose. The warnings of God declare his means to the end. We are dealing here constantly throughout the Bible with tensions that we want to logically resolve. And so if we're Calvinistic, which I am, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I'm going to hold on to the promises. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. How many will I lose? None. Okay. He will present me faultless before the Father with exceeding great joy. I'm not sure what to do with the warnings then. And the difficulty in this sermon of the book of Hebrews is that it is filled as much with instruction, with commands, with illustrations, like all good sermons, and with promises and warnings. There are five large sections of warnings. Now, on Thursday morning, about quarter to nine, Marley and I left Hamilton. We drove about 12 miles to Binbrook and picked up Bethany. Thursday and Friday, we drove 750 miles. The whole trip was governed by promises and warnings. I don't know who ran on ahead of us, but the whole thing was governed by promises and warnings. For example, Exit 21. Are you hungry? I promise there's a McDonald's there, there's a Dunkin' Donut, and there's, you know, a Cracker Barrel. Is your car hungry? Well, I promise that they, you know, there'll be gas there. Are you really tired? You need to get... 
all along the road are these promises. They, they promised that in 28 miles there would be a city there, whatever it might be. I like promises when I'm driving, don't you? But on that trip, there were tons of warnings. You're going 65. Up ahead is a sharp left turn. Go 30. High winds. The bridge freezes before the rest of the road. Reduced to one lane. Now the question is, who are those warnings for? Are they for bad drivers? We met a few. Weaving in and out. I walk funny, but these guys drive funny. They, they're not going to listen to these warnings unless there's a car that says we're here to serve. You know who the warnings are for? The good drivers. Now the other drivers should be listening and obeying. Now the interesting thing when you come to the Bible is that you need as much faith in believing the promises as you do in believing the warnings. And the warnings of the Bible are intended for me to believe, for me. What happens in the Christian life is we pit the warnings against the promises. It's like when I was growing up, I was saved at 17, I stopped doing that. But before that, I would pit my dad against my mom. And I knew there were certain things, if I asked my mom, I could do it. I knew other things if I, I should ask dad. And I learned how to kind of work my parents in a sense. Don, where are you going? You're supposed to clean. Well, Mom said I could go and play baseball. And see, the Bible comes to me, <clears throat> and it says, Don, I'm speaking to you. I'm warning you. <laughs> yeah, but my Heavenly Father said, once saved, always saved. And the Bible says, don't do that to the Word of God. You see, I don't know how all those signs got there. I, I suppose there was one road crew that just put the promise things where, the, you know, the next McDonald's, the next town, that kind of thing. Somebody else came by later and put up all the warning signs. Is that what happened? No, the same road crew. You need a promise here. You need to warn about a sharp curve there. You need to warn. Why they warn you about falling rocks when you're driving by, I'm not sure, but at least they're covered if you get hit by falling rocks. But, but you're warned. Okay? And do you know why we got here safely? Because we believe the promises and we believe the warnings. And so what happens is when we come to Romans 6, this is not a fight over the security of the believer. This is a passage that says, Don, I want your attention. Look at me. 
I'm talking to you. I want to tell you something, Don. If you pack this in, you're not going to be restored. That's a sobering warning, isn't it? And we'll see tonight why. You see, people kind of think that the gospel is just a thing to play. You know, I tried Jesus, and I, I, I don't know. Well, for a while I was happy, and then, but you know, what do you mean you tried Jesus? This isn't, you know, McDonald's and Burger King. You, you tried the person that is described in chapter 1 who upholds absolutely everything that he has made by the word of his power, that his one death on that terrible Good Friday is able to save all of God's people who have ever lived or whoever will live. He now reigns, even the angels worship him. He is called the very son of, you, you tried him? I, I'm just not into big whoppers. And, and the preacher saying to these people, look at you, you don't realize this is serious. You, you don't just kind of sort of make a decision for Jesus and then think, well, it's been pretty good. Or, wow, I wasn't expecting this. You see, persevering faith is what you're saved with. You don't kind of get saved with a, a consenting faith. Yeah, yeah, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died. I believe. <clears throat> and then later you kind of kick in this persevering faith when the things get tough. Saving faith from its beginning is persevering faith. And the warning is very clear. In verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Now it messes up my theology, but I better hear it. Because you know what is interesting? The whole book of Hebrews has language like that. It's not like if I can just get rid of chapter 6, I'm saved. How will I be saved if I neglect such a great salvation? And he's not talking to some guy on the street corner smoking dope. He's talking to people who are at church on Sunday. If I drift away, if I neglect, if I despise, like you, you just work through this book and you see the things that the preacher is saying to that congregation. And he's saying, listen, you're in this for keeps. Because if you pack it in, there's no second chance. But isn't God merciful? Isn't God kind? Isn't God understanding? We'll see tonight. But you need to know this, Hebrew Christians. You need to know this, Don Theobald. You need to know this, dear people of Be Beacon. 
you need to know, because I'm going to warn you five times in this Hebrew sermon, you mess with this and you're over. Now, if you read through the book of Hebrews, you will notice that the preacher has illustrations or examples of people who have apostatized. Uh, Two major ones. First is the generation, 20 and up, that came out of Egypt and perished in the wilderness. And we have to, again, be very careful. We can't go back retrospectively and say, well, obviously they didn't have saving faith. Obviously they didn't. But they didn't know it at the time. And the other example is Esau, Jacob's twin brother. He's the poster child for apostasy. And in the New Testament, we have men like Demas. We have Simon Magus. Uh, The ultimate is Judas himself, isn't he? What are you going to say? You know? There were people saved, born again under Judas's ministry. There were disabled people who walked for the first time in their life under his ministry. And we must be very, very careful that we do not pit the warnings of God against the promises of God. I'm almost 73. One of the reasons I've made it to almost 73 is because all through my life I've been warned. My parents, don't stick things in electrical sockets. Don't play with sharp knives. Don't accept candy from strangers. And on and on. And then I went to Bible college. And teachers said, be careful who you read. That Bart guy isn't as one of the guys you should really be into. Be careful of this, be careful of that, be careful of the other thing. And all through my life, I have been given warnings. And I'm here today because, by and large, I've responded to those warnings. And if you're a Christian, you're here today because, by and large, you've responded to the warnings of the Bible, even if you don't really consciously think you have. And what I must never do is let my theology trump the power and the impact of the warnings of the Bible. The Bible is filled with them. Have you ever read through the book of Proverbs? Are there any warnings there? Yeah. And Solomon's saying, listen, kid, because he's writing to a guy. Listen, kid, you watch that woman. Oh, I'm watching. I'm what? No. You watch that woman. You see that guy? He'll act like he's your best friend and he'll take everything you got. You watch that situation. You be, 
One of the great sad tragedies about King Solomon was what? He watched the girls rather than watched the girls. The Bible is filled with warnings. As you read through Exodus and Numbers and Kings and Chronicles, they're filled with warnings. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says to the church at Corinth, do you know why all that stuff was recorded in the Bible? All these guys came out of Egypt. They drank from the rock. They were under the cloud. They were part of the Red Sea. They did man in the wilderness. They did this and that and the other thing. And I'm not to say, yeah, but they obviously weren't really saved. I'm to say, wow. Except for the grace of God, there go I. And so as we work through this book, we have to ask it the right questions. What is the place and the purpose of the warnings of God in the book of Hebrews? Why are there five big blocks of warnings? And he's saying because in the history of the church, lots of people start out, but not everybody crosses the line at the end. I was saved at 17 out of a non-Christian home. I was baptized on a hot August night in Windsor. Me and another guy, Guy Lemieux. When he gave his testimony, wow, I just thought, that guy's going to go places. I think he lasted two years. Went to Bible college. The class valedictorian was Ravi Zacharias, as I mentioned. The girl valedictorian was a girl who was pregnant on her wedding day. I've met, over the last week, graduated in 72, that's 50 years ago. I've met people or heard of people over the last 50 years. Our class president is an openly gay homosexual. I don't think any of those people planned to be where they were. And you see, all along the road, and then when I became a pastor, I said, you know, it'll be different now that I'm a pastor. Every person I baptized, baptized, I met with them three times for an hour each time with written homework assignments. Then they went to the elders. Then they went to the congregation. Not everybody I baptized is still in the faith. We have a family camp that um, we get about three to four hundred people, and it's been going for uh, I'm not even sure how many years now, uh, over 40. There was a man who preached the best sermon I've ever heard on justification by faith, who subsequently denied the whole thing, left his wife, left the faith, and everything. And see, my dear friends, we have to hear the warning passages. And I have to hear them with the promises. 
You know, my parents didn't just yell at me and say, don't do this, watch out for that. My parents had a lot of promises. They promised me if I got a good education, I would hopefully get a good job. They weren't thinking of a minister as a good job, but <laughs> that was true. They, they, they made sure that I had a curfew. They, they, they made promises to me. They, they, they put money in the bank when I was a little kid for me to go to college. So it's not that my parents just yelled at me. It's not just the teachers at Bible college just harangued you and don't read this and don't do that and don't go there and watch out for this guy. Oh, filled with wonderful, wonderful truth. Everything that I know is built on the foundation of those four years at Bible college. And it's not that I just yelled at my kids all the time. No, there was lots of promises, there was lots of special dates, there was a lot of activities, a lot of holidays. And you see, the Bible is filled with, and we're going to see it even this week as we knock on the various rooms of 6 Hebrews Lane, we're going to see that God has so many ways to keep his people persevering. But the first door we knocked on was saying what? You be careful, Don. You're not home yet. You be careful. And I have to hear that. Because the preacher of Hebrews preached that to himself. The preacher was preaching that to a church that loved Jesus Christ, as we'll see. And he was preaching it to a church who at times in their lives, in your life and in my life, we say, is it really worth it? But what he's going to say to them is, we've come too far to go back, and if you go back, you'll never come this way again. Never. 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 I pastored a church for 18 years. I left for 12 years, they needed a break. And then they invited me to come back with another brother to co-pastor and we wound up four and a half years. We were hardly there, maybe six months, when one of the elders came to see me and he said, Don, I need to talk to you. And I said, sure. And we were very good friends. We used to meet on Saturday morning. Him and me and an old lady, she was probably 50, but when you're young, eh? And we would meet on Saturdays to pray for a revival. And, and he said to me, he said, you know, I, I, I don't believe this anymore. God, God has lied to us. And I said, God's lied to us? He said, yeah, I've been watching these science nature programs. And the earth is billions of years old and all that stuff. And the Bible seems to say it's just a couple thousand years. God lied to us. And I said, John, John, first of all, if you'd have met Adam at five minutes after he was born or made, how old do you think he'd look? He got married that day. They consummated the wedding that night. God didn't say, do you see that sapling? You know, in 20 years, you're going to have pears on that thing. I said, he made it with age. 
But I said, more important, more important, what does Jesus say? I said, did he really die? Was he really buried? Did he really rise three days later? Is he sitting in heaven today? That's the real issue. He just hung his head and he walked away out of my life. Two of the elders went to visit him and one of them, who's Bethy's dad, said, you know, John, if you make this decision, you're not coming back. And he shook his head and he says, I know. A couple months ago, I had his wife's funeral. I preached from the text in Revelation, blessed are those who die in the Lord. And I said, if you don't know how to die, you don't know how to live. And you've got to look after that first. You live by being in Christ so that you'll die being in Christ. And your ultimate blessing is your death. And he just sat there like this through the whole service. What does he have to say? This is serious stuff. That's why being spiritually immature is not kind of a light thing. You have no idea where it will lead you. You'll notice in the latter part of verse 5, you're trained. You're, you're, you're working out the word there is gym. And, and you're, you're building disciplines or undisciplines into your life. And, and again, the wisest man who ever lived said, you know, it's the little foxes that steal the grapes. I'm not going to get up one day and leave my wife and have an affair. There will be a lot of things leading up to having that affair. And there were little things like, oh, I don't feel like being in the Bible today. Oh, that sermon, that pastor's always yapping at me. Oh, I'm tired of reading books. Tired of praying, tired of this, tired of that. And the Bible says, oh, don't get tired. It's a matter of life and death. And you hear the warnings and believe the warnings as much as you hear the promises and believe the promises. You see, the warnings and the promises work together. I'll close with this. I don't know if you've ever tried to fix a bicycle tire. The wheel part, not the tire. Don't you wish all those spokes were just parallel? If they were, you know what would happen? That thing would just wobble and it'd be, you wouldn't get anywhere fast. But man, you put this thing here and hook it over there and then that one's over here and, and, and you're thinking, wow, whoever thought this up? But if you actually fixed it, you're able to ride that bike, and it's, you might be wobbly, but the, the wheel won't. And you see, I wish God would just line everything up straight so I could just say, yeah, I see that, I see that, I see that, I see that. But it would be a wobbly life. And he's got all of these truths that seem to be interweaving and, and at times even disconnected. The Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. Amen. The Bible is unique, and Paul writes differently than Isaiah, and Isaiah writes differently in Luke. Amen. God, the Son, died on the cross 
I'll never wrap my head around that. God is absolutely sovereign. But I have absolute responsibility. I believe God ordained that, he, that we would be here this Sunday to preach the word of God. But I also believe God ordained that I would watch those warning signs on the road. And I'd slow down when it said slow down. And the God who ordains the end ordains the means to the end. And I believe all of God's people are ordained to eternal life and they will never perish. But I also believe all of God's people will persevere to the end. Do you know the fifth P, or there's one P, the fifth point of TULIP, is not the preservation of the saints. Isn't that interesting? And I believe in that. It's the perseverance of the saints. And I've been called to persevere. And one of the best ways of keeping me in line is saying, Don, I'm talking to you. you I want your eyes. Listen to me. You know too many people from the Bible and too many people from real life who started out and didn't cross the finish line. Now you listen to me. You do what I tell you. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Never despise the, the warnings of the Bible. They are precious. I am so thankful I listened to my parents. So thankful. I'm so thankful I listened to the warnings of my Bible teachers at Bible college. So thankful. And I'm most thankful that there are warnings all through the Bible that I must never pit against the promises of God. Theology is helpful. I was telling a person the other day, I said, if you, x if you x ray any of my sermons, you'll see five bones. <laughs> but you won't hear them in every sermon like that. It's always the, the, the thing that gives it form and shape and substance. But I'm never, never, never to let my theology keep me from faithfully explaining the Word of God. Not explaining away. I know a number of Calvinistic pastors who can explain away this pass, passage, but who have lived it. And that's sobering. I've heard many people tell me what it doesn't mean. But the text, I think, is very clear here and in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 10 and chapter 12. It is saying, listen with your ears. And when you hear, you heed what I say. Slow down. You're to go around that curve at 30 miles an hour. Do you get it, Don? Slow down. Don't drive in a snowstorm like it's sunny and 100 degrees. Don't drive like that, Don. You'll kill yourself. And the Bible says, Don, you better be careful. First of all, you're a Christian. Secondly, you're a pastor. And Satan's after you. He'd love to make you shipwreck. I've got 50 years of people, a wife. In the last two weeks, we've heard of two evangelical pastors in our area who have had secret affairs and had to leave. They were exposed and they had to leave the ministry. Oh, they didn't listen. They didn't listen. You see, Hebrews warns you that without holiness, you will 
not see God. Well, I will close there. It's 5-2. I can turn it over to the pastor. I don't know if you have questions. Not you so much, but... (laughs) But do you have questions or... Have I spoken too long as it is?